Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. There's still the underlying fear of knowing that we will be working days on end taking care of the sickest of the sick. As far as the PPEs, we have yet to get so much as a gown from our suppliers. The only thing we've gotten, gloves. We got lots of gloves. We're trying to help our patients get better, but also protect ourselves, our colleagues, our families, our communities. This is an America Amplified call-in special from the New England News Collaborative. I'm Laura Canoy from New Hampshire Public Radio, and those are voices from across our region, healthcare workers confronting coronavirus. This hour, we want to hear your voice. If you're taking care of patients with COVID-19, what's been your experience? What do you think of your state's policies? What makes your job easier and what's making it harder? And are there regional solutions to this crisis? Join our conversation. Call 1-800-892-6477, 1-800-892-6477, or email americaamplified at nepr.net. Again, that's americaamplified at nepr.net. Our guest for the hour, Jean Harkless. She's chair and associate professor at the University of New Hampshire's Department of Nursing. She's been a family nurse practitioner for 40 years and is involved in numerous nursing associations, both state and national. And Jean, great to have you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Laura. Good to be here. And also with us from Boston, Michael Ulrich. He's an assistant professor of public health policy and law at Boston University. And Michael, really good to have you, too. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Jean, I'll start with you. Just broadly, what strikes you about this pandemic and how very quickly it has spread around the world and around here in New England? I think what strikes me the most is how important the entire healthcare team and community members are to address this this crisis. And as you know, being a crisis, it's both a a challenge and an opportunity to do things in an improved way, but also uh, learn lessons from the past and move forward with with new approaches. So um, it's a challenge for all of us, uh, but it can be a real opportunity for growth. Too. What kinds of stories are you hearing, Jean, from the nurses who are out there in the doctor's offices, in the hospitals every single day? I think what I'm hearing from my colleagues and uh, other nurses are that the, the challenge is it's an unknown. It's it's a new experience for us in Northern England coming face to face with a with with a new virus. But what we have is a really strong background in medicine and nursing and all the other healthcare disciplines of coming together and working in uh, in these kinds of, of moments. We we've prepared for this to a point, and now in uncertain times we're 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 operationalizing what, what we've learned. Um, the foundation for all of this is infection control, and that's what nurses have always led in, is infection control. So I, 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 we're challenged, but we're bringing forth a whole bunch of our background, education, ex- previous experience, and bring it home. Issue is, of course, 
resources, gathering and making sure the resources are in the right place at the right time. Well, we will definitely spend some time talking about that this hour because that has been a huge theme, the lack of protective gear for health staff and so forth. But Michael, how about you? Same questions. As a public health person, what stands out for you about this illness, about this virus, and just how very quickly it has changed life for us here in in New England? Um, I I think what has surprised me the most is how quickly things have changed, not just from um, February to March and now March to April or even week to week, but but literally daily. Um, And that's not something that we've seen in past um, sort of outbreaks. Um, And and I think it's been quite impressive, at, at least in certain areas, the way that the public has really sort of taken to this understanding of sacrificing um, some of their own individual and personal preferences and liberties for sort of this greater good. And obviously it it hasn't been, um, you know, everybody everywhere, but really the vast majority of people have taken to it, I think, rather quickly, which has been impressive. Well, and we'll talk later about the different policies New England states have taken and how those sort of uh, transformed over the weeks. But How about you, Michael? What are you especially going to be looking at, given your expertise here in the six-state region? Sure. The the thing that I am particularly interested in is um, the variation in states and and sort of the differences in their policies, the different timing in those policies, um, and the differences in language that's used. Um, Because, again, while I think the public is doing their best to stay in they, they look to not only media, but political leaders to figure out, you know, what should they be doing? How seriously should they take this? And the language that's used um, can really have a significant impact on that. Um, the other thing that I'm interested in is enforcement mechanisms. or um, starting to see the transition from not simply just guidance, you know, you should stay at home, but now orders and potential and moving more and more states we're seeing enforcement with um, arrests, with fines and potential jail time. So seeing how that impacts people and sort of the way that it's enforced and are there any disparities in who it's being enforced against is something that I think is important. Very interesting. Give us a little more there, uh, Michael, if you could please, on the importance of language. And you're right, the different states have used different language. There's advisories, there's orders. Just a little bit more there, Michael. It's really interesting. Sure, yeah. So, um, so one of the big questions that, that me and my colleagues have gotten is, what is a shelter in place? And how is that different from a lockdown? And the truth is, legally speaking, there is no difference. Um, you know, these terms are used, and I think sometimes they can instill fear. I mean, I've had a lot of fearful questions about an impending lockdown coming in Massachusetts, and what does that mean? And the truth is, you know, you have to look at the details of what the order actually is. And so I think it's really important to use language that informs the public that, look, you can still go outside for a walk, you know, you can walk your pet, um, things like that, so that people understand that the goal is to minimize interaction with other people as much as possible, um, not to literally force everybody to be inside 24 hours a day, seven days a week for months on end. Um, and the way that, that that comes across in that public message can really have an impact on on how people think about it, um, but also how 
people might act and stress um, that, that can come along with that, um, those sort of fears. Jean, how do nurses, you know, especially on the front lines of this crisis, how do they view these sort of messages from the region's governors? Um, Michael's absolutely right. The language has been different from state to state at times, and it has been evolving over the past few weeks. As far as nurses, I think their biggest concern right now is how do you both, how do you instruct the the public? There are many nurses that work outside of acute care institutions who are on the front lines of working with the community members to understand these directives and make sense of them. So those nurses are looking for guidance from their state leaders for a better interpretation from people like Michael. Um, But understanding that the foundation is infection control. I I think all the nurses, the nurses that are dealing with acute care practice, who are really challenged by working directly with people who who, uh, do have um, uh, COVID-19, and others who are trying to protect the public and minimize the transition, are all working in how do you best help people understand basic infection control and minimize risk, improve public safety, get through this crisis with a flattened curve rather than a peaked curve. Well, and in preparation for the show today, our team talked to a lot of healthcare workers all around the region. Here's a little bit from Kathy Roy Gosselin. She's a registered respiratory therapist in Maine. She mm-hmm. says her colleagues have a clear message for the general public. Many of them are very afraid of people not adhering to the recommendations to stay home. So there's a lot of that. A lot of respiratory therapists are saying, you know, please stay home to protect us so we can help you. Um, Because we have a shortage of respiratory therapists in the state of Maine. If the respiratory therapists become ill and they have to self-quarantine and they can't work, then you just don't have the resource pool that, that we may need. So there's Kathy Roy Gosselin, again, registered respiratory therapist in Maine. And Michael Ulrich, what do you think about that message? Is the public, you seem to say earlier they are, is the public getting it that, no, you can't do all these things you want to do because you you need to stop the spread and this may indeed actually end up helping you and your family? Yeah, so I think the the vast majority of people are getting it. Um, The problem is, is with a virus like this that spreads so quickly and so easily um, and potentially, and it seems like when you're asymptomatic, that you don't really need very many people to to start spreading it. And so it, it's not enough to say, it's great, we've got 60% of people adhering to movement restrictions and or 70%, right? We really need as many people as possible. And so while I do think that the vast majority of the public is getting it and is and they are actively trying to limit their um, exposure and time in public as much as possible. I, you know, even having a small minority of people that that aren't can be dangerous to the spread of the disease. You're listening to an America Amplified special from the New England News Collaborative. I'm Laura Canoy, and we're looking at how New England's healthcare workforce is dealing with coronavirus. We'd love to hear from you, especially if you work in this field. You can give us a call at one eight hundred. Eight nine two six four seven seven, or email America Amplified at ne 
pr.net. Here's an email that came in from Michelle in Lyme, New Hampshire, who says, how are hospitals legally allowed to require that their healthcare providers and staff work without proper protective equipment? Michelle says, if my office work environment had health hazards, like asbestos, for example, my employer is required by law to remove it and provide a safe work environment, and I am entitled to sue them if they knowingly expose me to hazards. Shouldn't healthcare workers in all capacities have the same protections with respect to COVID-19. Michelle says, please help me understand the rights of healthcare workers in this pandemic. And um, Michael, I'm going to throw that to you again, because public policy and law is where you work. Sure. Yeah. Um, so what we're seeing is, um, you know, one there, there is some inherent difference uh, in, in healthcare workers be, because they are by of the very definition of their job, putting themselves in danger to some extent, especially if you work in infectious diseases. Um, But more specifically to this, we're seeing waivers for a lot of laws and regulations. And and the idea isn't to put people in harm's way necessarily, but um, to try to deal with this sort of emerging crisis and, you know, thinking that well, the best way to try to handle this is to be flexible in some of these laws. And, and I think even the problem is that even though some of those might be well-intentioned, they can have potentially negative consequences by putting these healthcare workers who are already putting sort of themselves potentially in harm's way, exposing them to even more risk. Well, and the lack of personal protective equipment, again, has been an enormous issue. So, Gene, after a short break, I'll let you weigh in on that. Also, the Boston Globe reports this morning that a rising number of hospital employees are testing positive for the virus in Massachusetts, including 139 workers at Mass General. So I'll get your take on that after a short break. And we'll keep taking your emails and your calls. The number is 1-800-892-6477. The email is americaamplified at nepr.net. Stay with us. This is an America Amplified special from the New England News Collaborative. I'm Laura Canoy from New Hampshire Public Radio. This hour, New England's healthcare workforce faces coronavirus. We've been hearing the voices of nurses, doctors, and others in the medical field. And let's hear from you. How is this pandemic affecting your work? What do you need from your state's policymakers? And are you getting it? What role might regional solutions play in all this? Give us a call, 1-800-892-6477, or email americaamplified at nepr.net. Again, that's americaamplified at nepr.net. Our guests are Jean Harkless, chair and associate professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Nursing. She's a family nurse practitioner for the last 40 years. Also, Michael Ulrich, he's an assistant professor of public health policy and law at Boston University. And both of you, we've been talking about the incredible stress that healthcare providers around the region have been facing. I want to play a little bit from a nurse that we interviewed on the front lines in Worcester, Massachusetts. She works in the emergency room, so she is used to stress, but she says this is like nothing else. Hi, my name is Lynn Flagg. I'm a registered nurse that works in emergency department of UMass Memorial Hospital. It can be a very difficult place to work. It's very busy. 
we get level one traumas, which are things like gunshots and stabbings and bad car accidents. And so, I mean, I'm, I was pretty much used to the stress of working there. But recently, within the last couple of weeks, um, when we started uh, prepping for the coronavirus, uh, things have changed rapidly. Anyways, as it started to progress, it used to be just a couple of patients and then more and more patients were on precautions and um, it's scary. It's like nothing, sorry for the emotion, nothing I've ever seen before. And I have to take a deep breath in the morning and say, don't be afraid, you can do this. And I know that's what a lot of my colleagues are doing. Again, that's emergency room nurse Lynn Flagg from Worcester, Massachusetts. Our number for you to join us with your stories, questions, and comments about how the region's healthcare workers are experiencing coronavirus is 1-800-892-6477. And Jean, I'm sure you've heard your fellow nurses telling similar stories um, that we just heard from Lynn Flagg. You know, nurses are tough. They've seen it all. But this is really tough, Jean. They haven't seen it all. They they have not seen a pandemic like this in most of our lifetimes. Uh, it you know it, we can go back to the history from the 1918 uh, influenza epidemic and read the history of nurses and how they cared for this and 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 what the loss was and what the what the suffering was. This is a, a you know a pandemic happening with with really high level science and really high level understanding, but we have not been able to get as much resources out to people, both the, the, the psychosocial support, the team support, the numbers of providers out there to help these workers in the front line. You, what is ha- you know, what Worcester is doing, it sounds like is being very clear about precautions about making sure that infection control is the top line having frontline workers always in protective gear always having to breathe through the you know the best mask they can they can get it is a stressor in itself it's a physiologic stressor for for uh, body temperature for for you know just clarity of breathing so even in an an environment where the the infection rate may not be really high, the precautions being having to be taken by people are burdensome in themselves, and they do. It it is a it is a fear producing stress producing uh, uh, experience. I, I would like to just address the issue you brought up about the increase in infection of work of of employees in different Massachusetts healthcare systems. I do want people to be aware that part of our our big concern in the, in the country and, and in our region is that we need more population-based testing, and we we are just developing the resources to do that. That's been the slowest challenge, I think, to us. We need to know what's going on with this virus in the whole community. So when you talk about the increase in the workers at... at uh, Mass General or Tufts, Mass General did go up to 138 healthcare workers that are that or employees that are that are positive for COVID, but they have 5,000 registered nurses working in their organization with 25,000 employees 
across the MGH system. What we don't know is what's going on with all these other people and whether that increase to 138 is a direct care workers or what's going on. Part, I guess the Boston Globe did note that there was most likely many of these were community-based transmission and not related to their to the work. But again, the challenge of infection control and the challenge of appropriate PPE and the challenge of really understanding what's going on with the epidemiology of of the virus. Yeah, and appropriate PPE has been a huge, huge theme, as I said. And um, I definitely want to ask you about that too, Michael. But yeah. lots of people who want to jump into our conversation. So keep the calls coming at 1-800-892-6477. We want to hear from New England healthcare workers, how you are experiencing coronavirus, what state policies are in place that are helping you, what might help you more? Again, you can call 1-800-892-6477 or email Amplified at nepr.net. And uh, both of you, let's go to Amherst where Joan is on the line. Hi, Joan. Thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. Sure. Um, I'm calling in. Um, I, I also uh, serve the role as the nurse executive director of the New Hampshire Nurses Association, and I'm, I'm calling in from my home office. Um, our organization is very plugged into what's going on uh, across the state of New Hampshire uh, with respect to nurses, and we're receiving almost daily outreaches uh, with nurses. Um, the thing that's really encouraging is that over half of those outreaches are generally nurses looking to volunteer and help out with the situation. So um, I'm, I really applaud the nurses in the state that want to to help in this time of crisis. Um, we did a survey a couple of weeks ago, and within four hours um, looking for volunteers, we had over 300 responses. And by the time we closed that survey, we had 625 nurses looking to help out. The other side of the call that we're getting are from nurses concerned about the availability of PPE, personal protective equipment, in their facilities. For instance, um, I had a nurse come call in with who worked in the home care arena and was very concerned that um, nurses being sent into homes were not being given N95 masks even when a patient had known um, COVID-19. And the only time they received an N95 is if they were doing something like nebulizing treatments, which are what we hear in the, the healthcare um arena is an aerosolizing procedure. Sure, and that's how the virus spreads. By the way, N95, that's the sort of gold standard mask, just to make sure folks know that. Go ahead, Joan. Yeah. Yes. However, there's been a lot of um, studies out there right now that indicate that for the vast majority of transmission, particularly within the community, transmission is occurring via droplets. Droplets are much heavier particles and generally don't travel more than three to six feet. So in reality, a face mask is more than adequate in most Um, Joan, can I ask you you a quick question? Something you said I find really interesting because we're trying to look at sort of policies in the New England states and how they might help with this situation. You said you put out a call for volunteers and you heard from a lot of nurses who said, yes, I'll help out. Who are they? Were they retired? Were they people who had moved on to other careers? Um, Who were these nurses who weren't working and then said, yes, I can help? It was a huge spectrum. We had um, registered nurses, uh, advanced practice nurses, licensed practical nurses, and nursing assistants, licensed nursing assistants applying. We had those with current licenses that were likely actively employed or engaged or possibly furloughed from um, 
more uh, primary care related offices which are moving to um, telehealth um, delivery of care to their patient populations. So we also had retired nurses who were looking to volunteer, um, preferably in helplines, um, working for the uh, public um, health department, answering calls and questions, doing uh, things such as contact tracing, uh, uh, follow-ups. Sure, sort of uh, more had, office uh, work so they don't put themselves yes, at risk. Yeah, exactly, and that's where, where it would be most appropriate to place them. And then we had nurses who had lapsed licenses who might have chosen to stay home and take care of children, preschool children, and while their license wasn't current, they were looking for ways to move back into the healthcare workforce so that they could help during this time of crisis. Well, Joan, it's really great to hear from you. And, uh, Michael, I did want to ask you about some of these strategies that states are taking, um, changing licensing requirements, asking retired nurses to come back online, nurses who have lapsed um, in terms of their certifications. How helpful is all this, Michael? Um, I think it it certainly can be helpful, right? And and this is definitely an era where flexibility is, is probably warranted in a lot of ways. Um, And so right now what you see is some, and this is what I talked about a little bit earlier, is, you know, waivers of certain guidelines, certain regulations, certain laws um, to try to maximize the amount of healthcare workers um, that can be involved. The problem is, is at least some of the stuff that I've seen is that there's some inconsistency. Um, And so while they're asking for retired people to come out, waiving licensing to get people to be able to cross state lines. You read other stories about um, certain providers still going through with, you know, scheduled time off and furloughed leave and even releasing, maybe not nurses, though I think that happens in some circumstances, essential staff. Um, And so things like that, you know, denial of benefits for catching the disease allegedly out in the community, not in the work setting. Um, and so things like that, you see some inconsistencies, I guess is what I'm saying, so that while some of these changes are potentially beneficial, you'd like to see more consistency across the board to really uh, empower and enable these people that are putting their own health on the line to, to do what they are trained to do. Well, Joan, it was really great to hear from you. Thank you. And To her point about retired nurses, Lucy in Lovell, Maine, wrote, I'm a retired hospital nurse, 69. I've heard the call from New York for retired nurses to go back to work. Lucy says, frankly, I would be really scared to enter the workforce given my age and health conditions. And, of course, we heard Joan talk about efforts to put those older nurses um, in more sort of telephone and office settings. Let's take another call. Uh, This is Elizabeth in Edgecombe, Maine. Hi, Elizabeth. Good morning. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Um, I'm calling about a friend of mine who's a CNA at a hospital, and she's um, it's in Maine, and she's on the oncology ward, so that's what she signed up for. But they're now putting COVID patients on the floor. She has very severe asthma, and she's been trying for about three weeks to get laid off or to get a leave of absence or something that, so that she wouldn't have to be working with a COVID patient. She would not survive if she got that um, got COVID. She just wouldn't. Wow. And, you know, her asthma is really bad. She's actually called out two nights because uh, she had such bad asthma, she couldn't even, you know, go out of the house. And they're, they're telling her that she's been to HR several times. She's um, written a letter to her supervisor, 
She's, um, you know, been doing everything she can think of, and they're telling her that she would not be able to get unemployment. And, uh, you know, she only gets paid $12 an hour. Wow. I mean, this is ridiculous. Wow, a highly trained person, too. Elizabeth, thank you very much for calling in. And, Jean, I'll throw that to you. And if, by the way, you can tell us what a CNA is that uh, Elizabeth mentioned. Sure. Um, a CNA is a certified nursing assistant that in New Hampshire, the licensed nursing assistants are read, are licensed by the Board of Nursing. I believe in, in Maine, they're also licensed by, by the Board of Nursing. I would say that this woman, I, I can tell you, I, I am not quite familiar with what what New Hampshire, what Maine did as far as um, uh, paid medical leave for people who uh, are unable to work. But I think that, uh, I I wish I knew more resources for your Maine person, but um, please have her keep pursuing that. It sounds like she is in a a high risk uh, category. And I know other organizations are, are really looking at their staffing and not having high-risk people be in high-risk situations. So uh, we know that in rural places, the healthcare staffing is even under more stress than in urban areas. But there are many jobs as a CNA that one is is it's important workforce contributions that have been done during this time that do not put you at risk. At, it lowers your risk. I can't say you're never at risk but lowers your risk for COVID infection. So again, we're always talking about lowering risk rather than getting rid of risk altogether. Well, so the question is whether there's any transfer, any change in, in, in work requirements. Well, and certainly the asthma is a huge concern. And it, I don't know the yes. rules in Maine either, but I do know here in New Hampshire, um, the rules for getting unemployment insurance right now are pretty flexible um, right. in terms right. of you know helping people out who cannot work due to whatever reason for um, coronavirus and COVID-19. But I'm, this, exactly. this caller makes me wonder, Jean, and this is me speaking as a non-medical yeah. person, how much flexibility is there among different uh, nursing professions? For example, if, you know, if someone is a nurse in an orthopedics unit, can that person help out in an infectious disease unit with coronavirus patients? Right. I mean, obviously, there's a whole different set of skill sets, but... I wonder if there is some transferability there. Yeah. So the foundation of nursing is that we're given professional status to take on the obligation of caring for those in our communities, those in society that need our services. So we are a licensed profession who, when when we enter into this profession, do take on an accountability to provide care in some challenging situations. That is not that we we sacrifice ourselves or that we put ourselves in undue risk. But we do recognize that the nursing profession uh, does sort of put us in a position that we have a duty to provide care and we have a responsibility for non-abandonment. So putting just that down as, as a foundation. So if you're an orthopedic nurse in an acute care hospital and you've never run a ventilator, you don't know about ventilated patients. There are opportunities, again, to serve in other capacities in those organizations to provide care, to free up those nurses that can do that. Other models are that they're using in New York State and other high-need areas are partnering, taking nurses who are expert critical care nurses and putting them as team leaders or putting the other registered nurse who does not have that critical care uh, experience as the support person for that registered nurse 
in that acute care, in that acute care, critical care environment. So again, based on, on, on knowledge, skills, and, and, and ability based on safety of that person, age, healthcare status, those kinds of things, there are ways to create more efficient care, uh, care teams. All over New England and across the country, licensure laws have been relaxed in many environments, in many states, so that an LPN can do somewhat more than LPN used to be able to do, removing barriers to movement across states for licensure. So I hear the music coming on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll talk about that after a break, and I'd love to get Michael's take on that, too especially the idea of healthcare workers crossing state lines to help out. There is some concern about people coming in from other states. Um, governors have had a lot to say about that around the region. So we'll pick that up after a short break. Stay with us. This is an America Amplified special from the New England News Collaborative. This is an America Amplified special from the New England News Collaborative. I'm Laura Canoy from New Hampshire Public Radio. This hour, New England's healthcare workforce faces coronavirus. We're hearing the voices of nurses, doctors, others in the medical field. And let's hear from you. How is coronavirus affecting your work? What do you need from your state's policymakers? And are you getting it? What role might regional solutions play? That's what we've been talking about these last few minutes before the break. We'd love to hear from you. Call in 1-800-892-6477. Email exchange at nhpr.org. Once again, exchange at nh... Excuse me. Our email is americaamplified at nepr.net. americaamplified at nepr.net. Our guest for the hour, Jean Harkless. She's chair and associate professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Nursing. She's been a family nurse practitioner for 40 years. Also with us, Michael Ulrich. He's an assistant professor of public health policy and law at Boston University. And Michael, to you, before we go back to the many people who want to jump into our conversation, what about this idea of inviting healthcare workers to cross state lines to help out in states or regions where there is more critical need? What challenges does that uh, raise and and what concerns come up around that policy, Michael? Sure. I I think... Again, like like most ideas, I think they're well intentioned, and I and I, I think that this one could have a positive impact. But um, the the how impactful it will be, I think, could be quite minimal. Um, we still haven't hit our surge and probably our peak point in I, I don't think any of the New England states, and so how beneficial is is this licensing restriction going to be? If Massachusetts is having, you know, their peak and their crisis at the same time that New Hampshire is and Vermont or Maine or Rhode Island or Connecticut. Um, and, and so it, it, it's a nice idea. And I think that there could be some potential benefits. But how beneficial it will actually be, I think, is, is questionable. Well, and Michael, governors have been telling people who are, you know, thinking about waiting out this virus at their mountain home in Conway, New Hampshire, or their, you know, their seaside home in Cape Cod. Governors have been saying, please don't do that. <laughs> and if you do do that, please quarantine yourself for 14 days. So does that concern really apply when it comes to healthcare workers as well, Michael? Yeah, so that's a it's a good question. Um, again, I think that 
for the public generally, state variation can be extremely problematic. Um, so something just as simple as, um, you know, differences in whether golf courses are open, you know, is, is could be an important thing come, you know, May when the weather is getting nicer. Because the more you have variation, the more you can incentivize people traveling. Um, and the more you have people traveling, it just increases the potential to expose others and possibly spread the disease. Healthcare workers probably aren't going to be going to golf courses um, anytime soon, I'm guessing. So there's less of a risk of that, of them sort of crossing state lines and going into um, public places to expose people. But if you just look at the numbers, right, somebody in uh, Vermont coming to Massachusetts to help, that's great. Vermont, at least as of right now, has a little over 300 cases. Massachusetts has around 9,000, right? So it's, again, creating potential vectors of spreading to where, in one sense, you say, okay, well, there, there's more of a need here in Massachusetts because there's so much more, so it's great to get healthcare workers. In another sense, you are putting them in a direct place to potentially be exposed, right, by working in a healthcare setting and then going back to a state where it's maybe not as much of a problem right now. And, and of course, all of this is in question because of testing, and so whether the numbers are accurate is sort of a separate issue, but it's an important one. Well, let's go back to our listeners. Lots of people who want to jump into our conversation. Again, the number 1-800-892-6477. Our email is americaamplified at nepr.net. We want to hear your stories of healthcare workers in New England dealing with coronavirus. And uh, both of you, let's go to Karen in Plainfield, New Hampshire. Hi, Karen. You're on the air. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk to you. I want to tell you first about my daughter, who has worked at the State Department, the UN, and Oracle. Presently, she has been in-home isolating for more than four and a half weeks, and she has severe asthma. She called to get, to get medical advice over the phone, and she happened to call to Baltimore because down in D.C., things are pretty close together. She was refused medical care over the phone because she was over a state line. And she says, that can't be right. You know, viruses don't pay attention to state lines. So um, they said, well, we could talk to you if you've already been a patient of ours. She was calling about getting her first appointment with them. So um, there are still some restrictions about telemedicine that are stopping some other people from getting their medical care. Oh, Karen, I'm glad you called because as we look at solutions, you know, uh, inviting retired people, nurses and doctors to come back into the system, relaxing some of the licensing requirements, we should talk about telemedicine. And to you, I think, Jean, how useful is telemedicine in this coronavirus crisis? I think what we're experiencing now with uh, doing remote care for people in I think very efficient and effective ways is going to transform healthcare for the next 10 years. But what it allows us to do is quickly um, understand a patient's concerns, identify what we can do by history and observation, sort of looking at somebody or just doing a phone, phone check with them, and then efficiently providing whatever resources we can with treatment or advice or whatever. So for most part, it's been, it's been really an effective use of resources in this in this state now the the boundaries for telehealth and telemedicine 
have been removed at the Medicare and Medicaid level based on federal changes. When, when, our, when the president uh, evoked the emergency declaration, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services then quickly changed, opened up their regulatory barriers to allow much better access for people getting services reimbursed by Medicare and Medicaid. And then many states have removed their barriers to who can provide what service where and when. And New England's been pretty open about that. Um, the, so I can't address the issue about Maryland, but I know in the New England region, we have become very porous with telepractice and telemedicine. Here's an email from Deborah in Ellsworth, Maine, who says, I have been an obstetrical nurse for over 36 years and work in a small rural hospital on the coast of Maine. My coworkers and I have been begging to be fitted for N95 masks since this whole pandemic hit high alert levels in the U.S. in early March. Deborah says, We have been improvising, using surgical masks, clear plastic shields, etc. Early on, we heard a rumor that we have, quote, tons of supplies, but have yet to see them. Deborah says, I'm 66 years old with asthma and currently waiting to be approved for a medical leave of absence until this crisis wanes. I feel selfish asking for this, but my doctor agrees. I am at high risk. Nurses need help, Deborah says. Deborah, thank you for writing. And let's talk a little bit more about the lack of protective gear that shockingly still continues around New England. Again, in preparation for the show today, our producers talked to a lot of healthcare workers. I want to play a little bit more from Lynn Flagg, who we heard from earlier. She's the emergency room nurse in Worcester. And here, Lynn says she's heard colleagues say they'll refuse to treat COVID-19 patients if they don't have the right protective gear. That's the most important thing, really, is, I mean, besides the social distancing, is if you don't have your healthcare force to take care of these people because they're getting sick because they weren't provided the right material. That's crazy. And not only that, who, who should tell anyone, you know what, you don't really have what it's, what, what's right to go into fight this fire, but why don't you just go give it a try? I can't not imagine not doing my job. I'm afraid, but... Um, I don't blame somebody else that chooses not to. Again, that's Lynn Flagg, an emergency room nurse from Worcester, Massachusetts. Michael, what do you think? Could doctors and nurses refuse to work given that they don't have the gear that will keep them from getting sick? Um, so I, I completely understand that perspective. As much as you know, we admire them, uh, healthcare workers, for going out and putting themselves in harm's way, um, you know, they have their own family and loved ones that they also need to care for, let alone sort of their own personal health. And so it's completely understandable to say, you know, I, I'm not willing to do this without the right protective gear. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a labor law expert, so I won't get into how that might impact their benefits. But certainly if they have leave and things like that, I, you know, it's completely understandable. Do you want to jump in, Gene, on that real quick? I do. I, I under uh, we have a it's a it's a complicated picture of the fact that a, a little under 20 percent of the nursing workforce is over the age of 60. So that adds another level of complexity. So what we know from the science of pers- per, per, uh, personal protective equipment is that for droplet precautions, a surgical mask put on properly, used properly is very effective. 
you can add protection by using a face shield over that surgical mask. That creates very good. Again, nothing is risk-free, but it minimizes your risk by, you know, as best as you can. The N95s are a precious resource right now. And they are they absolutely need to be used when you're using a nebulizer, when you're using intubation, when you're using a non-invasive ventilator, when using high-flow nasal cannula oxygen. There are times when you absolutely need an N95 mask. That's that level of safety and protection for those people. And this is the challenge. We have people who have high-risk backgrounds who want to add extra precautions because of their own very, very important personal risk. And this becomes that that area of uncertainty. What does that individual do who's over the age of 60 with severe asthma, who wants to continue as a registered nurse in her labor and delivery unit? You know, is there a way to be flexible about getting an N95 mask to those people who do have higher risk? Even though we know from the science, a surgical mask with a, um, a, a shield over the top of it provides very high um, levels of, of protection. Again, not risk-free, minimizing risk. Michael and Jean, let's take one more call if we could. This is Sarah in Portland, Maine. Hi, Sarah. Go ahead. Hi. Hi there. I wanted to share what I think is kind of a success story, which is what we've been able to do in the ICU at Maine Med right now. Um, our our management has been remarkably proactive about converting our ICU rooms to negative pressure rooms. And at the ICU level of care, we need that extra level of precaution because, um, as was just said, we're doing aerosolizing procedures like intubation. Our patients are on high flow, so on and so forth. Oh, and I'm um, sorry to jump in on you, Sarah. A couple technical yeah. terms there. Without going into too much detail, ICU, we know what that is, intensive care unit, but... Um, you used a couple other medical terms in there that are important to understand. Go ahead. Sorry, um, maybe when I said negative pressure rooms, is that? Sure. So that's that's making sure that the patient's in a room where the airflow is only going into the room so that any aerosolized particles don't flow out of the room. Sure, because this um, disease is, again, they, spread so quickly and so effectively through right. the air. Okay, go ahead. So we want those specialized rooms for... The, the ICU patients who have this illness. Um, and that took a lot of engineering and a lot of work to convert all of our rooms to be those negative pressure rooms. Um, and our the hospital has really been ahead of the curve um, in terms of converting rooms to negative pressure before we've needed them. So we've been converting them. We have more capacity in terms of rooms than, than we even need right now, which is great. Um, we've also been really proactive about <clears throat> instituting PPE conservation strategies. So um, down in the ICU, what we've been using are what's called pappers, which is sort of like what you see in ET, like the full head hood thing with a sure. blower motor attached to it. Um, those are great because they can be reused indefinitely. Um, they can be wiped, you know, they're assigned to an individual person. I have you know, maybe I have my own personal hood, and in between uses, I just wipe it down with a disinfectant wipe, and in between shifts, I'm able to store it on a shelf, and that way, we're not faced with running out of N95 masks. Wow, so it sounds like you have mostly what you need in Portland there, Sarah. Um, Jean, what do you think? Are positive stories like this starting to pop up around the region, or are people mostly very stressed out about not having what they need? 
I think there's a lot of critical care units that are really planning well for what will be the surge towards the end of April in our area. And they are coming together with these creative and, and, and resource, you know, uh, using uh, 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 changes. The fact that they, that MainMed has invested the time and resources into retrofitting perhaps those rooms into making sure that all the staff was, you know, was prepared and understand how to use the personal protective equipment, that they had the high level resources on, on hand or they ordered them early is a great, great story. And many of the organizations in the state have been able to do that as well. Um, we are all on hold for the, the, the surge that will probably be coming. And most of the large organizations have done a really good job at working to reassign staff, you know, holding admissions for uh, anything that would be considered elective uh, and, and, and making sure that people are prepared for, for the coming surge. Well, Sarah, so. thank you for calling and for helping us end on perhaps a slightly positive note. Um, Jean, I really appreciate you being with us this hour. I hope we talk again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. That's Jean Harkless. She's chair and associate professor at the UNH Department of Nursing. She's been a family nurse practitioner for 40 years. Also from Boston, Michael Ulrich, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That's Michael Ulrich. He's an assistant professor of public health policy and law at Boston University. I'm Laura Canoy from New Hampshire Public Radio, and this has been an America Amplified special from the New England News Collaborative. This was the second in a series. Next Friday, join New England Public Radio to continue exploring the impact of coronavirus on our region. We will look at the big drivers in the New England economy. Now, if you'd like to join us with your thoughts and experiences before the show, send us an email. It's americaamplified at nepr.net. So again, if you run a business around the region, if you have questions about the regional economy, you can send us an email, americaamplified at nepr.net. PR.net. Our program was produced by Ellen Grimm, Morgan Springer, Michael Brinley, and John Denkowski. Special thanks to engineer Dan Colgan and call screener Christina Phillips. Vanessa De La Torre is the executive editor of the New England News Collaborative. America Amplified and the New England News Collaborative are made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.